Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we open God's word this evening, let's make sure that we're in right relationship with the Lord. As we walk by the Spirit, frequently, too frequently, we stop walking by the Spirit and the default position is the sin nature. As a result, our rapport with God is broken, our walk with the Lord is broken, and so we must confess sin, which simply means to admit or acknowledge our sin to Him, and instantly we are forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness. So we'll take a few moments of silent prayer, for silent prayer before we, before I open in prayer and before we begin this evening, to make sure that we are spiritually prepared, that we can spiritually recover, so that we can continue our forward momentum in our spiritual life. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for all that you've provided for us, for a salvation that that guarantees the forgiveness of sin, not because of anything we do, not because of feelings of remorse or regret or sorrow or sadness or any other emotion, but because our Lord Jesus Christ took the penalty upon himself on the cross. He paid our penalty in our place. And, Father, because he paid the penalty... And at salvation, we trust in him, and his righteousness was imputed to us. We're justified. We're declared justified. We are positionally forgiven in Christ. But when we sin, we know that we can confess that sin, and instantly we recover, we're forgiven and cleansed. Father, we pray now for each of us as we deal with the circumstances and this virus, the situation with this coronavirus as it goes around and this unseen enemy. And Father, the prognostications of the medical profession and those who deal with statistics look at all the evidence and uh, they project some things that seem pretty dire. But we know that we are not to put our focus and attention upon the details on these bad circumstances. We're to do what we should be doing, washing our hands, keeping our distance, taking care of ourselves to the best of our ability and trusting in you. You ultimately are the one in whom we trust, and we rely upon you to watch over us, to protect us, to provide for us. And we trust in you that no matter what happens, we know that all things work together for good, 
and we know that you are in control. Father, help us, strengthen us through God the Holy Spirit to have an attitude of joy, peace, patience, gentleness, and kindness towards others, uh, loving one another as Christ loved the church, that we may be an example to others uh, outside of the body of the true bonds within the body of Christ. And, Father, as we continue our study this evening and what David has written in this psalm, Psalm 64, we pray that you would uh, help us to understand even more how you are our protector and our refuge and that we might recognize that we have a great hope, a great confidence, a great basis for joy and happiness because of our relationship with you and all that you've provided for us. And now, Father, as we open your word together, we pray that we might be uh, edified, strengthened. This will be part of our spiritual growth. In Christ's name, amen. Open your Bibles with me to Psalm 64. Psalm 64, last week we got all the way through the first verse, or almost through the first verse. I think we made halfway, halfway through the verse. And in this psalm of ten verses, we have a psalm that, even though it doesn't say or identify it as being uh, within the circumstances situation of the Absalom Rebellion, it, it makes sense. There are various things that are said here. For example, in verse 3, uh, his enemies, David's enemies, sharpen their tongue like a sword and bend their bows to shoot their arrows, bitter words. And that fits with what we read in Psalm 3, which is definitely uh, written within the context of, of the Absalom Rebellion and talks about their conspiracy and their lies and the way in which they have used uh, slander to de, uh, defraud David. And they seek to remove him. Uh, they seek to remove him from the kingship, from the throne. And we saw last Thursday night, as we looked at Psalm 61, some of the same language. And this week we'll get into, on Thursday night, into Psalm 62, which has a lot of the same vocabulary. And in fact, it, it, it talks about the fact that they seek to, uh, destroy him and cast him down from a, from his high position. They are, uh, his enemies here are seeking to destroy him through, uh, through the things that they say, through their, their, um, through their slander, through their lies, through their misrepresentations. And so when we look at all of these Psalms, even though they don't necessarily identify this as a time, uh, during the Absalom rebellion, they fit that scenario very, very well, but they could fit some other circumstances and situations in David, so we can't be certain. But they definitely fit any circumstance or situation where we as believers have, uh, are under attack, whether it's the attack of enemies, of people, associates, uh, somebody we know, somebody we work with, someone in the family, or whether it's uh, an attack that maybe our nation is facing through certain circumstances, uh, militarily or economically. And of course, in this situation with the coronavirus and all of the many unknowns, which is so unsettling. I mean, that's what, what wakes us up at night is, well, what if and what about and all of these different questions. And yet the promise that we have in scripture 
for example, David prays in Psalm 3 that he can sleep at night. He's going to get a good night's sleep because he casts his care upon the Lord. He trusts in God, and so he can uh, rest in him, and that's going to be a very much a part of our understanding in Psalm Psalm 62, talking about how it uh, in the English it translates it, uh, truly my soul silently waits for God. There's so much in there, and not only is it not the best translation, but it does try to bring out this idea of silence and waiting and being patient and uh, not making, just, just sitting there still waiting on the Lord. So that's, that's what we need to cultivate at this time. This is a time when, when for each of us there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty. At this point, there are a lot of people that we know, people we care about, a lot of our own congregation are people who are not working right now. They don't know if they're even going to have a job to go back to in some cases. We know that, like the case with any, with any war, if you've ever studied what happened at World War I, if you studied what happened during the American War between the states, which takes place from uh, 1860 to 1865, Nothing was the same again. That's why Margaret Mitchell titled her book on, on that gone with the wind. Everything that was before was blown away, and it was new. It was new in the north. It was new in the south. There was nothing quite the same as it had been before that war. And that's true in every war. That's true in every significant economic depression that our nation has gone through. And it's part of the change. It's part of what happens when we live in the devil's world. And so we have to relax, and and uh, there's something that we just want to be in control. We want to have that uh, certainty and that security that comes from our control of the circumstances in our life. And yet what God is teaching us is that everything in life changes. The only thing that doesn't change, the only immut- immutable one is God and we just have to learn to trust him, and no matter what happens, we are able to survive because he is the one who gives us that security. So we're continuing to see how God protects, and tonight we'll finish up the psalm. So much of it was covered in the just the introduction and background last time. But to remind you, there's three sections to this psalm, ten verses. We've covered one of them. The first section covers uh, Psalm 64, verses 1 and 2, where David cries out to God to protect him from those who seek his life. We may cry out to God from uh, about this disease, this pestilence that seeks to take our life, or at least to take our health, or the life of our loved ones. In the second section of the psalm, David describes the malignant, slanderous lies of, and schemes of his enemies as they plot against him. And he describes it in very vivid, picturesque language and reminiscent of the conspiracy that he talks about back in Psalm 3. And then the third division is the last four verses. David, uh, <clears throat> David is confident that God will return the schemes on the heads of the conspirators, which will bring joy to the righteous. God's just going to turn it back on them. He's going to bring it back on their heads, and he is going to uh, make them uh, pay in the way that they had attempted to make him pay. So it's interesting to see how often God will use someone's scheme, someone's own methodology, someone's own plots to hoist them on their own petard.
So we looked at this, started to look rather at this first part, Psalm 64, 1 and 2, where David cries out to God to protect him, to be his refuge, to uh, provide for him uh, in this situation. He expresses his uh, complaint to God, not his meditation that communicates a completely different idea, but it is as if he is bringing a a legal complaint before the Supreme Court of Heaven against his enemies in the sense of, of, of a lawsuit. And we looked at that last time. And then the second part of the verse shifts gears to the petition, which is for God to protect his life from the fear of the enemy. So in the opening part, we saw that he, he cries out to God. He says, hear my voice, O God, in my a complaint, or when I when I complain, complain, or in my complaint, and the word there for complaint we saw last time means it can mean meditation, something that's going on inside of somebody's head, or it can be have the idea of a complaint, something that is laid out and brought against somebody else because of the things that they have uh, they have done. It is related in terms of a prayer. Uh, but the idea at the very beginning, when he calls out to God and he says, he says, uh, hear my voice, he, he's really saying, listen to me, pay attention to me, do what I am asking you to do, intercede on my behalf. He's not just, he doesn't just want God the psychiatrist sitting on a, on, uh, on a chair while he's on the sofa just rehearsing life's events. He, he is calling upon God to do something. That is, the meaning of the word uh, Shema, listen to me, O God, uh, when I complain. So he's laying out his complaint, and then as he cries out to God to hear his complaint, to respond to his complaint, then the second part of the verse, David prays for God to, to preserve his life and hide him from his enemies and their rebellion. So here I think it's important to understand that the word cry here Indicates that he's, he is, he is, it's, there's an intensity here. And just as we may wake up in the middle of the night, as happens so often, all of a sudden you start thinking about all the things you heard on the news and you ought not watch the news that much, but you need to be aware of what is going on and you need to understand whatever it is that the state or local government is telling you to do and you ought to abide by it because uh, they're getting the best advice possible. And we've elected these officials to lead us and to guide us. They're not asking us to do anything that's immoral or anti-biblical or anything of that nature. And so we ought to trust them. And we ought, we know that uh, in many situations, whenever there is a um, any kind of a plague or virus or pestilence, that the best thing to do is to stay away from people so we don't catch it. I was watching a um, special that had been on uh, PBS the last... I don't know when it originally showed, but they had it on in the middle of the night, and I had recorded it, and it was on World War II. And the third series, it was in a, on um, uh, the show American Experience. And the third part they were showing last night, they got into the late summer of 1918 and began to show a lot of footage on the on the Spanish flu and what was happening during the, that time. And everybody was wearing a mask. Everybody had a mask on. All the soldiers had masks on in, in Washington, D.C. Everybody did. Everybody stayed inside. Everybody tried to stay away. And they had no idea what was causing this. 
uh, and people were just truly dropping like flies, talking about uh, it was really focusing on a lot of the wounded soldiers that were uh, back from Europe and there in the hospitals in Washington, D.C., and they would get sick in the morning and they would be dead at night. And so this was just sweeping through the nation. Over almost 700,000 Americans were killed in the Spanish flu epidemic. And so this so far is not that bad in the projections as of today, if they know what they're talking about, and we don't know that they do, is that maybe a hundred to 200,000 Americans might die as a result of this. Well, that just pales in insignificance to uh, the Spanish flu. But if you're one of those hundred or 200,000 or there in your family, then it's just as serious and it's just as devastating as if they're not. But the confidence that we have in God is whenever we face any kind of devastating circumstance or situation, any kind of adversity, or it's, a, it's always a test of doctrine, a test for us to see if we're going to apply what we've learned, a test that we're going to take what the Bible has taught and we're going to implement it into our lives. And there's always going to be one of three things that happens. First of all is God is going to deliver us from it. It won't touch us, just as God delivered the Israelites from the plagues of Egypt and from the last plague, which was the death of the firstborn. He delivered Israel from it, and he gave them the solution, which was the application of the blood of the lamb to the doorposts of the of the home. Uh, incidentally, Passover it begins on April the 8th this year, which is a week from Wednesday. So God can deliver us from it, or God can deliver us through it. And so that's the kind of thing that happened with uh, Daniel and with many other young Jewish men and women who were taken as captives to Babylon. They, their nation was defeated in 605 with the first invasion of Nebuchadnezzar, and they were taken as captives. They were probably went through some some uh, horrible times, some, some uh, fearful times, uh, dreadful times as they were captured and hauled off to, to Babylon to a totally pagan culture, one that was not kosher at all, and with and away from their families and all of the fears and anxieties that went along with that. And yet, when we have the example of Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah standing their ground and being as true to the scriptures as they could possibly be. God delivered them through it. And then there were others who, who were killed, who died uh, in the military campaigns, in the military battles, if not in the first invasion of Nebuchadnezzar, but in the second or in the third. And that's the third way. Sometimes God takes us home in the midst of it. And so it may be God's plan that it is through this virus that he's going to take some of us home. It may be God's plan that some of us are not going to be touched by it. We will not be sick. We will develop an immunity to it. And then there will be others of us who are going to be sick and maybe very badly sick. And yet God is going to uh, enable us to survive, and we will go on and live uh, fruitful lives. And so it's all a test of our faith to trust in him and to relax in him. And so that's what David prays for here. He's not wrong to pray for God to preserve his life. He doesn't know whether God will or will not. And the same thing happens to us. I know I have heard 
uh, pastors say that the Apostle Paul was wrong to pray for the thorn in the flesh to be removed. Well, he didn't know what the answer was going to be. It's not wrong to ask God for something if God answers and says no. And in David, I mean, in Paul's case, he had direct revelation that God said, I'm not going to take it away because I'm going to demonstrate my power through it that my grace is sufficient for you. And so you're going to continue to deal with this adversity and this this problem. So it's not wrong to pray for something. It's wrong to reject God's answer, especially if he says no. So David prays for God to preserve him and to hide him from his enemies. And so in the second part of verse 1, he says, protect my life from fear of the enemy. And he uses this word in the Hebrew, Natsar, which is a common word that is sometimes translated watch over me, sometimes to the idea of, of protect me or guard me or keep me. But here it has that idea of protecting him from the conspiracies, from the lives, from those who seek to take his life and to remove him uh, from the throne. So he prays that God would protect his life. Literally, he says, protect my soul, but that stands for his life from the uh, fear of the enemy. And uh, we have this in another verse, this word, Natsar, in Psalm 32, 7. And that verse begins with the phrase, you are my hiding place. So this is an affirmation of David's that he is hiding in God, he is seeking refuge in God. That Hebrew word is sater, which means to hide or to conceal him. And as I pointed out last time, this was the uh, verse from which the title for Corey Ten Boom's book came, The Hiding Place, and it referred to both the fact that she had a hiding place for the Jews in her home, but that God was ultimately their protection and their hiding place. In Psalm 40, verse 11, do not withhold your tender mercies from me, O Lord. Let your loving kindness and your truth continually protect me. And here he, he's basing this on God's character. He's calling upon God that in his compassion he will uh, not, uh, not let him be overrun and destroyed by these enemies. And then he's calling upon his faithful, loyal love. That word translated loving kindness is translated so many ways because we just don't have a good English word that captures all of the dimensions of the Hebrew word hesed. It has to do with faithful, loyal love, that someone is uh, is faithful and loyal to a covenant and that he is going to protect David and his truth. His truth, that is the word of God. It is God's word that protects us. It's God's word that that gives us a, a, the ability to think objectively about the situation and the circumstances and not to cave into fear and worry and anxiety. And so we need to uh, hide God's word in our heart. We need to memorize scripture so that we can recite it when we are in those difficult circumstances or we find ourselves becoming fearful uh, of what might happen and not knowing what might happen. That's the the lack of knowledge, the uncertainty. That That is something that's always difficult for people to handle. In Isaiah 42.6, we have a messianic prophecy which is related to the Messiah, and it is Yahweh who is speaking to his faithful servant 
who is the Messiah. And Yahweh says, God the Father says, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. This is a promise to the Messiah that God would protect him as he goes through his life. I will hold your hand, I will protect you, and give you. Christ is given as a covenant uh, to the people. What that means is he is the one who establishes uh, the new covenant, which is established at the cross, but it is not does not go into effect until the second coming. But he is the one who is going to effect that covenant for Israel that has been promised for Israel. And so he speak, God the Father speaks of it as giving Christ, Jesus Christ, as that covenant to the people, and not just to Israel, but he's given as a light to the Gentiles. So that has to do with illumination. And so that is part of his role as the Messiah. It doesn't mean that the covenant part, he's given as a covenant to the Jews, but he's given as a light to the Gentiles. It's not a covenant to the people and also as a light to the Gentiles. It's not that idea. He's one thing to the Jews, one thing to the Gentiles. And so he is going to be protected by God. So Psalm 64, 1 says, David prays, protect my life, number one, and, and protect me from the fear of the enemy. Now, what does that mean? This idea of fear here is the idea of terror. It would include the idea of, of panic, of just trembling, of just, you know, when we get afraid and all that adrenaline starts rushing and, and you have that flight, uh, flight, fear of flight syndrome or fight or flight syndrome, then you, you start shaking. That's the idea there. It's the result of that fear. And so we, it's produced by the enemy. It, it is, um, uh, when you focus on the enemy, you focus on all the things that could happen, then of course you are become, um, fearful. And as we studied on Sunday morning in Psalm 91, uh, part of the promise in that Psalm to the Jewish people was that you shall not be afraid of the terror by night nor of the arrow that flies by day. And as I pointed out in that Psalm, Verses 3 through 9 do not have anything to do with the church-age believer. They all relate back to the the terrors of divine discipline that are outlined in the five cycles of discipline. The first two verses provide uh, the framework for our trust in God, that we are to take refuge in him in the shadow of his wings. But here we have the picture uh, the reminder that if Israel is faithful and take their position uh, under the uh, under the wings of God and the shadow of His wings, then what will happen is that God will will protect them, and they will benefit from the the, the excuse me the blessings of the first part of Leviticus uh, twenty six. Don't worry about the cough. I've had a cough for six months, um, nor the arrow that flies by day. Um, that, spe- that you have nighttime and daytime in, in that verse, as I explained the other day. So it's, it's don't be afraid of an attack, whether it comes at night, comes during the day, you can trust in God, then this is not going to happen. So that's based on the promise of Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. 
Then in, we go back to Psalm 64.1. It is protect my life from the fear produced by the enemy, as I translate it here. Listen to me and respond, O God, when I lay out my complaint. Protect my life from the terror or the dread produced by the enemy. So this allows us to have objectivity, calm, peace, tranquility, even in the midst of the assault from the enemy. We can trust in God because he is trustworthy and he can handle the situation. Then we come to the second part of this opening in verse 2, where David continues this prayer for his uh, that God would protect and preserve his life. And in this second section, he's praying that God will hide him or conceal him from the secret plots of the wicked. And this takes us back to Psalm 3, where it talks about the secret plots of Absalom and his friends and the conspirators against David. So here you see that connection, hide me, conceal me from the secret plots of the wicked, and from the rebellion of the workers of iniquity. So you see two things. Hide me, number one, from the secret plots of the wicked. Conceal me from those. That's a way of saying don't let that come to pass. And second, from their rebellion. Don't let their rebellion uh, succeed. And so the idea of hiding here is the verb satar. We just looked at the noun form for a hiding place, and here it's the uh, it's the verb which means to hide or to or to conceal, hide me or cause me to be hidden. It's a hyphil, which is the causative stem. Cause me to be hidden from the secret plots of the wicked. Make me invisible. Uh, don't allow those plots to come to fruition. So we have other places where he uh, David prays for this. Uh, keep me as the apple of your eye. The apple of your eye is your pupil. This is where light comes in and revelation. So that is that is a central important fact in a, in a human being, the apple of your eye and the apple of God's eyes where he watches over them. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me or conceal me under the shadow of your wings. And that was the same image metaphor we saw in Psalm 9091. Uh, Psalm 27, 5, for in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion in the secret place of his tabernacle. He shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. And that is the idea of protection that we're set, set high on a rock where the enemy cannot reach him. We are reminded of promises such as uh, the promise of Moses to the Israelites as they are being chased by by um, the Amalekites or by the uh, Egyptians uh, before the uh, they cross the Red Sea and David and, and Moses said, "Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. See the deliverance of the Lord." And this is echoed in David's statement when he is going up against Goliath, and he makes the statement that. Um, know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear. Certainly God saves with sword and spear, but that's not the real issue. It doesn't matter what your military technology is or how great your skill is. What matters is God's control. So God takes control, and it doesn't matter how wicked or evil something may be. God is, is still in control. 
All this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's. And he will give you, speaking to Goliath, into our hands. And so the battle is the Lord's. It's always the Lord's battle. And as we face all the different secondary consequences from the way governments have put us into exceptional death with the uh, the rescue bill, who knows what impact that's going to have on the economy, on the value of the dollar, who knows what what companies are going to survive, which ones won't survive. There's, there's so much unknown, so much people could become afraid of, but the battle is the Lord's, and we as believers just trust in him and relax, knowing that he will take care of us no matter what else is happening, just as he handled Goliath for David. Psalm 91, 2, as we, and 2 through 4, as we studied the other day, uh, expressing the idea that God is my fort, my refuge and my fortress. My God in Him I will trust. God is the one that we, that is worthy of our trust. And then we come to Psalm 64, verse 2, where it goes on, hide me from the secret plots. This is this word, uh, sowed down here at the bottom left, and it refers to a secret council. And it's in parallelism with the word that shows up here in the second, uh, second stanza of the verse from the scheming and the plotting. That word has the idea of the rebellion. Uh, and that's what we have in the, in the English, the rebellion of the workers of iniquity. But it is more precisely their scheming and their plotting. So these, these two things are parallel and then wicked is parallel with the uh, with the workers of iniquity. So this second second uh, noun is a Hebrew word that means scheming. It's the same word used in Psalm 2.1 when you have the kings of the earth plotting against God. Uh, and, they, and then in Psalm, uh, Psalm 2.1 says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? So this is the same idea. It always seems to be used of the evil, uh, the evil ones. And this, in the way it's used in the Psalms, refers to those who are not believers. Not that believers can get uh, deceived and involved with evil, but here the distinction is uh, in contrast to the righteous, and the righteous are those who are who are believers, who have received imputed righteousness, not always moral, just as righteous Lot was not always moral, but it has that idea of being righteous in their standing before God. And so the second verse could be translated, uh, conceal me from the scheming of the evil ones, from the plotting of the evil troublemakers. And so this is the enemy. So when we look at this, we see that the problem is that David is being conspired against. He has enemies. He has people who seek to take his position away from him, uh, seek to take his life, and so his life is threatened. That's the problem. The solution is to be hidden by God, to conceal himself in God, to uh, pray to God to preserve his life, which is the same thing that we should be uh, praying as well as we face a hidden, invisible enemy that may seek to take our life. 
We now come to the second part of the of the psalm, verses 3 through 6, where David describes the malignant, slanderous lies and the schemes of the of his enemies. And this these three verses are very picturesque. They use a lot of visual images in the language where they use uh, military metaphors in order to communicate uh, <clears throat> communicate what is happening in terms of the sins of the tongue. So in verse 3 we read, who sharpen their tongues like a sword. You have that imagery there, a sharp sword can pierce and cut and destroy and dismember uh, a, a person just as words can. And they bend their bows to shoot their arrows, and their arrows are bitter words. So we the, these arrows come forth from their mouth, and they seek to destroy and to, to ruin uh, David. Verse 4, that they may shoot in secret at the blameless. So it's, it's a surprise attack. One of the basic uh, fundamentals uh, of uh, military action is is to sur- surprise the enemy. Suddenly they shoot at him and they do not fear. So the evil and the wicked have no fear of the consequences of what they are doing. They have a surprise attack, and so by catching David unaware, they hope to destroy him. And then they're plotting. They encourage themselves in an evil matter. They talk of laying snares secretly. They say, who will see them? Well, God will see them because God is omniscient and he knows all the knowable and he knows exactly what, what they are plotting. But we see these words, sword, bows, arrows, the actions of shooting in verse 4 and laying snares in verse 5. These are, are metaphors. And so I've used this picture the last a uh, couple of lessons to communicate and help us understand what a metaphor is. I took this picture uh, 15 or 16 years ago when I was in Greece, just saw this uh, <clears throat> this truck on the road, park, parked on the side of the road, and I asked the guide, I said, well, why does it have metaphorus written across the uh, front of it? And she said, it's transportation. And then I just immediately took a picture. What a great illustration of the meaning of metaphor. It means to transport the meaning, the literal meaning you think of with a word, to apply it to something unrelated to vividly portray what is going on. And so that's the idea here. When they are sharpening their tongue like a sword, that's a simile. It is a com- stated comparison. And it says, and bend their bows to shoot their arrows, bitter words. Now, see, it doesn't say their arrows are like bitter words. It's an unstated comparison. So that is a metaphor. And so literally the word used to translate bend is the Hebrew word darak, which means to walk or to tread on something. And so it it probably takes this idea of of stepping down on something, stepping on a bow in order to string it, and then uh, you take the arrow and you uh, insert the arrow and fire the arrow. So it's a, um, a transportation of the meaning of the bow and stepping on the bow to the result. If you step on your bow and string it, then you're going to fire an arrow. And so 
the action stands for the result of the action, which is aiming the arrow and firing the arrow. And so this, this communicates to us very vividly how they are doing this and the destructive power of their words. Verses 4 and 5 then uh, express the surprise attack upon David. It comes in secret. It's, they, they shoot suddenly and then they, they pat themselves on the back and encourage each other to carry out, uh, carry out this attack. And this reminds us of what was said in Psalm 3-2 by the conspirators against David, where they, where David says, many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. So they sought to say things and make up things and to shoot these evil sayings at David in order to destroy his confidence in God, that God would not help him. And this has a certain uh, <coughs> overtone, messianic overtone to it, because at the foot of the cross, uh, you had people ridiculing Jesus and said, well, if you're really God, uh, if he was really God, he could take himself down off of the cross. Uh, God has abandoned him. So it's the same kind of thing where people are destroying somebody through through their words. Then we come to the last verse in this section. They devise iniquities. They, they devise sins. They are constantly thinking about what they can do in their rebelliousness against um, against David. They say, we have perfected a shrewd scheme. And so it's both the inward thought here and the, both the inward thought and the thought of man are deep. And so it is talking about this, this secret conspiracy starting in the mind and they have devised this, this, uh, conspiracy. But what happens? As they have developed this scheme, they have come up with a way to trap David and to destroy him, but God will turn this back on them and destroy them. And we see this in the third point, in the third section of the psalm. Uh, David's confidence, uh, or David is confident that God will return the schemes on the heads of the conspirators, which will bring joy to the righteous. God is going to hoist them on their own petard. He is going to use what they have planned against them to overturn them and destroy their conspiracy. So this is what we see in verses 7 to 9 in these uh, these three verses. But God will shoot at them with an arrow. See, they are the ones who are shooting in secret at David with the arrow of their bitter words. But now God is the one who's going to shoot at them with an arrow, and suddenly they will be wounded just as they were suddenly going to shoot at David. So David flips it back on them. In Romans 8.31, God says, What then shall we say to these things if God is for us who can be against us? See, we need to trust in God and trust in his sovereignty. Now, we don't do that in a foolish way. Let me give you an example of a foolish, of a, of a wise way. Most of us live in homes. Many of us live in Houston. We know that there is a crime rate in Houston. In some neighborhoods, the crime rate is more. And that there are people who are looking for opportunities to burglarize your home. So what do we do? 
do we just simply trust God to protect our home, leave the front door open? I remember when I was a, a kid growing up in Houston that whenever we were going to be away from the house for 30 or 45 minutes or an hour, we didn't even lock the back door. We didn't start locking the front door until I was probably seven or eight years old. Nobody did. We'd leave the keys in the car. Uh, you could trust people. And that's not... Um, that's not that odd today. It may be in Houston, but I remember uh, when I had a pastor friend visit uh, at in Connecticut. He was from a more urban area over in Ohio, and uh, he had come to Connecticut and he was he was visiting, and he and his wife were walking across the parking lot, and he was pointing out. He said, "This is this is a real country town. Look at look inside the doors of the cars. Every one of these cars, the keys are in the ignition." Because there's no crime rate out here, not like in the city. So, you know, that's, that wasn't unwise because there was a sense of, uh, of stability and there wasn't the, the problem. But I know that by the time I was in junior high or high school, not only were we always locking the doors every time we left the house, but we had a security system. And that's how much the culture changed in a period of 10 or 12 years. And so today, if we're going to leave the house, we have security systems, we have locks, some people have double or triple locks. Uh, it's not that we don't trust God, but we're not, we don't think that God is going to take care of us even in when we're foolish and even when we are tempting God. We're not supposed to do that. And so the same thing applies when we are facing this, this situation with this virus. We need to do what we should do in order to protect ourselves as much as we can. We need to make sure that we have uh, disinfected our homes, disinfected our our cars. If we have kids that are coming in and out or other people coming in and out, then we need to pay attention to this a lot. If you're living by yourself and nobody else is coming into your house, then you don't need to be as concerned about things like that. But going out and going to the grocery store uh, today, I, the other day I ordered masks. Mine aren't going to come until next week. But I'm, we're hearing more and more on the news. Sunday morning when I stated this in the opening comments, I said that, that there's three things that, the, um, that China, South Korea, uh, Taiwan, Hong Kong, some others are doing is they're wearing masks, they're washing their hands, and they're keeping... The, their distance from people. Those three things are important. And have you noticed, if you've watched the news in the last three days, that starting Monday morning, a great controversy has developed among the medical profession here is whether to wear masks or not. The Surgeon General says, no, you don't. He he's stakes his ground. But today I saw interviews with three other people who are specialists in, in infectious diseases, and they're all saying, at the very least, because so many people don't know if they have it and don't know if they're infectious, just in a, a concern and care for your fellow man, wear a mask. You don't want to be infecting other people if indeed you are infectious. So this is the way that other uh, countries have really minimized 
the infectious are, are, are decreased the infection rate. So we need to do these things. That's wisdom. It is foolish to tempt God. It is foolish to taunt God. We need to uh, not uh, take that into, uh, we need to not act like that. Now, sometimes you hear people abuse something, some quote or something that someone has said. One of the most famous quotes in this area is a quote from Thomas Jonathan Jackson, Confederate general, known as Stonewall Jackson. And in the first Battle of Manassas, as it's known in the south, the Battle of Bull Run, as it's known in the north, Stonewall Jackson stood in the midst of the artillery fire that was where shells were landing all around him, bullets were whizzing by, but he's performing his responsibility as a leader. He's not flaunting God. He's not being foolish. He's out there leading his troops, fulfilling his his responsibility. Afterwards, a captain asked him how he could stand uh, so steady in the midst of all of that fire. And his response was, Captain, my religious belief teaches me to feel as safe in battle as in bed. God has fixed the time of my death. I do not concern myself about that, but to be always ready, no matter when it may overtake me. He added after a pause, looking me full in the face, that is the way all men should live, and then all men would be equally brave. Now, Jackson wasn't being foolish. Uh, I've heard some people make some extremely foolish statements. They're not fulfilling their responsibility and trusting in God to take care of them. They're being foolishly irresponsible and trusting God to take care of them. And that, that is wrong. That is not what is going on here. When you have a job to do, when you're a doctor, when you're a nurse, when you're working in, a, in an ER and you have and it's your responsibility to take care of the people that are coming in, the people who have uh, this coronavirus and they're infectious. You do the best you can to protect yourselves. You have your mask on. You have a, a headset on, uh, screening your face. You have gloves on, all of the protective gear. You don't just go in there unprotected and say, well, I'm just going to trust God to keep me safe. That's foolishness. So you do what you can do. And then you go in there fulfilling your responsibility and trusting God. You don't act irresponsibly. You don't, God is not some sort of fatalistic God like the Muslims worship. And yet too many Christians blame God for everything or hold God responsible for everything because they act like they're either the fatalism of hyper Calvinism or the fatalism of Islamic, uh, uh, the Islamic religion, and both, neither of which is what the Bible teaches about trusting God in the midst of a crisis. So we go on to read in this second section where God is going to turn their schemes back on them. God shall shoot at them with an arrow. Suddenly they will be wounded. So he will make them stumble over their own tongue. So their sins of the tongue are going to bring judgment back on them. All who see them shall flee away. Those who were following Absalom and Ahithophel and the others, they are going to see all of their schemes collapse, and those who followed them will then run for fear. In the conclusion, he says, All men shall fear and shall declare the work of God. 
for they shall wisely consider his doing. It's interesting that a survey came out this afternoon, someone emailed it to me, that 44% of Americans think that this is a wake-up call where people need to get back to God, focusing on on what God has to say in their life. That included, uh, that was the response of 25% of people who considered themselves to be completely secular, and that was somewhat surprising, as well as some other groups that are not Christians, that they've all felt like God is speaking to us and telling us that we better get our act together. And then there were about a third of the respondents thought that this this is a, some, has something to do with the end times, with the last days. And so all of this is a response. People look at this, they see an action like this, it has completely disrupted their lives in ways that have never before happened in, in history, and God is getting some people's attention. And I believe that that in the coming two or three weeks, our president said today that the next two weeks will be quite terrible. He expects there to be uh, a high number of fatalities over the next two or three weeks. But when we are going through this, it will bring the fear of God into people who have rejected God, people who have uh, denied his existence, but God is getting their attention. And so we need to be ready with the answer. We need to be available to give people uh, the answer. I had a um, situation this last week. I've not, uh, I've not uh, taken advantage of it yet, but I'm going to, where I have a friend who is an agnostic, and he has made certain, you know, claims. He's, he, he probably could recite the gospel to anyone in my congregation as well as they could, but he has never trusted in Christ as his Savior. And yet he's in a situation due to various, uh, uh, things that have happened in his life apart from this coronavirus before it really came along, and he's flat on his back. This is a guy who's prepared for every contingency, but he told me the other day, I never prepared for the fact that I would be flat on my back in bed and can't get out of my second floor. And my response is, maybe you ought to think about the other thing you haven't prepared for, and that is what happens if you die and you're face-to-face with God. And that's how we need to be. We need to be bold, and we need to take advantage of these situations and challenge people and drive home the truth of the gospel, that God has brought this about to get your attention, and how are you going to respond? And so in verse 10 of this psalm, as we close, the righteous, that is believers, shall rejoice in the Lord as they see how God intervened in David's situation. And the result is that they will take refuge in God, and this is a word that we've studied and seen in each of these psalms. Here it's the verb chasa. We we saw the machzeh, uh, which is a term for the noun for a refuge, a hiding place. Um, also in Psalm 91, and we'll see it again in Psalm 62. Uh, they are taking refuge in God, and the upright in heart. See that is parallel to the righteous. The Upright in heart shall praise God. They will go into the temple or the tabernacle at this time, and they will describe what God has done, and they will praise him, and they will write psalms and hymns to praise God for how he has intervened in the life of David and how he has protected him 
uh, from these uh, slanderers, from these who would seek to destroy him and, and uh, take, take his throne away from him. And so next time we're going to, on Thursday night, we're going to continue uh, with this series of psalms. It's a little confusing because on, on Tuesday nights, this is still part of our Samuel series, but on Thursday and Sunday, we have also been looking at the Psalms in relation to a series related to our current situation that we need to be trusting in God because God is the one who fights for us. God is the one who will protect us. God is our refuge. And so for at least this coming Thursday and probably on Sunday morning, we will continue this little sub-series. And then next week is the week that precedes the crucifixion of Christ, and so we will divert our attention focusing on that. We'll be coming to the Lord's table in two weeks on the second Sunday in April, and so you need to make sure that you are prepared uh, for uh, worship at the Lord's table, which means you need to go to the grocery store and get some matzah or, in worst-case scenario, some saltines and also some grape juice or wine, and set things up for yourself in preparation on Sunday morning uh, for the Lord's table. That will be on on uh, Sunday morning. That should be about the 12th or so of April. So, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be reminded that you are a refuge, that we need to take refuge in you, trust in you. You are our confidence. And so as we look at these psalms, there's such a great expression of David's confidence, his hope in you, and that we can have that same hope because we know that you are in control of our lives. You have a plan and a purpose in each of our lives, and we can relax because you're going to work work out that plan and that purpose. We need to do what we can do, take the actions we need to take. We need to be reading our Bible. We need to be engaged in whatever work or responsibilities that we have. We need to make sure we keep ourselves uh, protected to the best way we can, not acting in foolishness, but being wise, and then trusting in you that you are the one who will protect us, you will set us on a high place, and you will preserve us from the enemies who seek to destroy us. And even if it might be that we, our lives are taken during this, this uh, pestilence, that we know that we will be face-to-face with you, and what greater joy can there be to be taken home to be with you. And we pray that we would internalize these things, and God the Holy Spirit would help us to understand how we need to transform our thinking to align it with your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.